So, um, you know, on the day I was born, the nurses all gathered round, and they gazed at the wonder of the joy they had found. The head nurse spoke up. She said, leave this one alone. She could tell right away I was bad to the bone. <laughs> bad to the bone. Da, na, 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 na. Sorry, I, uh, that, that song came up as I was thinking about it and it's, um, by George Thorogood. Don't, don't read the other verses because they're not all that great. But that's actually kind of like, it's a funny way of talking about um, people because it really is true. And as I was contemplating Romans chapter 7 today because I wanted to, I wanted to give um, Leonard some, some space to try and time the Resurrection Sunday in Luke and not kind of take up more real estate in Luke, I decided to go into Romans 7 because I had been kind of uh, just, I don't know what, what came up to me as I was thinking about the nature of the gospel that ex- is expressed in Romans chapter 7. But as I, as I got into it, I, start, I sort of had an epiphany where we have this, um, this kind of common idea where people are always trying to express, well, what's really unique about Christianity among all the world religions? And there's many things that are truly unique about it in terms of just the, the person and work of Christ. But as I was contemplating Romans chapter 7 and what we truly understand what, what, what distinguishes Christianity from other religions is that if you understand this, then you really understand Christianity, and that is that no other religion truly deals with the sinfulness of man in his condition and the grace of the gospel to bring him from death to life to be able to deal with that condition. Some people say, well, you know, Christianity is a personal rela- about a personal relationship, and that's what distinguishes it. But everybody has a, relationship, a personal relationship with God, some better than others. I mean, like, the fact of the matter is that, that um, you know, it says that, that man is at enmity with God, and being someone's enemy is a personal relationship. So that doesn't help just to talk about as a personal relationship. What we're talking about here is really understanding and really delving into the nature of our sin and the nature of God's grace, and especially in light of where Paul is in his epistle to Romans, which we obviously haven't been doing a study of Romans, but just to bring you up to where he's at, he, he kind of introduces in, in Romans chapter 1 the fact that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe the that the uh, and he then goes into the fact that the just shall live by faith, but then he explains that man is himself is not just. Mankind is de- is is actually uh, suppresses God's knowledge in, in unrighteousness, and 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 from that suppression, God gives them over in their sin to all sorts of um, evil acts, and then he and then as as it were as people are kind of. 
uh, eavesdropping on this, the religious are like saying, yeah, you're right, those people are unrighteous. And then Paul says, you're unrighteous too, even those of you who confess Abraham and who confess true religion. Do you not steal? Are you not wicked yourselves? And then he concludes and, and counts all flesh as being unjust and unrighteous in God's sight. And then the remedy comes in Romans chapter 3, where he talks about the fact that the, the just justice of God is satisfied by himself, where Christ has um, become the just and the justifier of the unrighteous. And the, re- the way for that is by faith that those who are unjust, all of mankind is unjust, would lay hold of Christ by faith and in him be found righteous in God's sight. And then in Romans chapter 4, he gives Abraham and, I, and David as examples of that same kind of faith, that same kind of righteousness, not justified by works, not justified by the strength of their might, but by God who justifies by those who place their trust in him. An alien righteousness that Christ provides and brings them into them. Romans chapter 5 reminds the sinner that God has saved them um, and that he will save them to the uttermost, that he saved us while we were his enemies, and he'll much more save us while um, we're his friends. And he introduces this paradigm where he breaks mankind into two different humanities. Those who are, those who are in Adam, those who, like all of us, um, once Adam fell, in him all mankind fell in the sense of everybody who's born is federally and counted guilty of that and counted guilty and unrighteous in and of themselves because of the fact of Adam's um, corruption. And, and, and because of that, they're also born with a nature that inclines themselves and actually is, enslaves them to sin, where sin as a principle rules over them. And then the other humanity is those who are brought out of that humanity into Christ's humanity are then set free from that and they're in Christ. So you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And he introduces these two humanities um, and that God is gracious to save, not on the basis of anything that we do, but on the basis of the, the, the God who justifies. So then the, the question is provoked by the listener and says, well, so if God loves to save sinners so much, and he's exalted in his mercy and he's exalted in his grace by, um, by saving people who are sinners. Maybe I can sin so much and I can keep sinning so that God can keep forgiving me and grace can abound in his, 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 uh, his forgiveness of my sin. And this is sort of the, the question that Paul poses in Romans chapter 6. Shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? And Paul says, heaven forbid... That's a stupid conclusion to what I just said is basically what he's saying. That's not what I was saying. He's saying basically what you've been set free from is bondage to sin in Adam and you've been set free to live in Christ. And he introduces this. He talks in Romans chapter 6 about the fact that in Christ, as we laid hold of Christ in righteousness, we were sinners justly deserving wrath. And so he looks at us, we are unrighteous in ourselves, guilty, uh, guilty of sin, and then, Christ, and then we lay hold of Christ. And then as it were, because we lay hold of Christ, we die then to the power of sin. We actually become just as we're positionally in Christ. We're inside of Christ now. We're in Christ, not inside of Adam. And we die to sin's power. And says, how can those, since you died to Christ and you rose again in newness of life 
in, in, in Christ. Now you have the power of Christ in you to obey. How can you who, want, who died to sin live in it is the question. See what I'm saying? Like, are you following what I'm saying? Is that in Adam, we're dead and enslaved to sin, and in Christ, we're set free to that. So it doesn't make sense for us who have been set free to live as sinners. The point he was making was that you can't be saved over here by anything you do because you're unrighteous. Over here you're saved. The point isn't now to continue to sin so that grace may abound. The point of grace is to release you from bondage to sin so that all you do is sin all the time. So now we get into Romans chapter 7 because there are questions that are provoked by that. Because the beloved, there's something about Romans chapter 6 that's powerful to, to think about. I'm in vital union with Christ. The, the, very, son of God, the very Son of God is, is by the Spirit whom I'm in vital union with. That's a powerful thing. I have this, the resurrected life, resurrected life of Christ available to me. And then the question is, but yet I find myself to be a sinner. Does anybody else have this autobiographical thought in their lives like, I find in my life that I sin? Does anybody hear a sin beside me? This question? Okay, just making sure. Because on my, today, literally, before I was preaching this, this sermon, I was mad at my wife. And I was sinfully mad at my wife. And I was thinking, I've got to preach today. And I was so, it was almost like my flesh inside of me was like, it was a Romans chapter 7 teachable moment said, I better, I better get this under control by Christ's power because I have to stand in front of a bunch of people and actually preach like I believe this and not live as if, no, I'm going to let sin rule in my members today. This is, this is Romans chapter 7 then. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Okay, so Paul is then saying to, to us all, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she she will be called an adulteress, if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another, another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may, be, so that you may belong to another, to him who has... Um, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may uh, bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions arose, aroused by the law were at work in our heart, were, were at work on our members to bear fruit to, to death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the, new, in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Please be seated. So again, let me remind you, I don't see very well. I did learn to read at an early age. I just can't see well enough to read sometimes, and it's embarrassing. 
It's my flesh actually making me proudful about that, prideful about that. Um, okay, so what's Paul's point here, okay? I know that seems a little weird. Like, we just talked about this stuff, and now Paul's getting into this stuff about marriage. You have to understand, this is one of the things uh, that's, first of all, let's, let's, let's deal with the fact that Peter said that there are things that are in Paul that are hard to understand. So if you're saying this is hard to understand, then, then take comfort in the fact that the Apostle Peter agreed with you, okay? Now, because it's hard to understand doesn't mean that we don't try to understand it, and it's, it takes a long time to really start to get underneath what Paul is saying. Now, and this is one of the reasons why Paul is so abused and misunderstood, and there's whole communions of the church that divide over certain aspects of what Paul teaches. One of the confusing things about this is the way that Paul uses the word law. And he doesn't always use the word law in the same way. He actually uses the word law in a way that we might consider legalism. He might use the word law in a way that he's trying to get at something else. Now, what I'm going to try and tell you very uh, briefly here today is the way that he's talking about law in this sense is that there's kind of a law, as it were. Remember, we talk about this being under something being under two atoms and that sort of thing. So I was thinking about this. Sometimes I have some of my better thoughts while I'm in the shower. But I was thinking, like, if you're an atom, then here's the law of God, the holiness of God kind of, like, coming at you in its full force in the way that the law is revealed. And it's kind of beaming right at you. You're under the law, directly under the law. So think of the law as this like infinite code of God's majesty because the law reflects God's holiness and his greatness, his majesty, and his justice. And it's coming at you full force. Its rays are coming at you and you're just being pressed out. You're under the law's curse, as it were, because God's law is holy, but you are sinful. And all you can see as the law comes and shines well, you can't see it if you're dead, dead in sins and trespasses. What you might do is if you're a Pharisee, you'll set up some sort of other thing like a shelter. You'll like, you won't look at that. You'll look at another code, as it were, and you'll put yourself and say, well, what really God's, God's law is really about is that like, I want to obey God in every way that he said in here, so I can only go a Sabbath day journey, so let's just talk about how far you can walk before there's a Sabbath day journey, and then I'll be good to go. I keep all the law, that sort of thing. But if you really understand, this is where Christ is kind of tearing all those structures apart, saying, no, get rid of all that garbage that you have. Really, if you are an Adam, you are directly under the law, and you are under its condemnation, its direct condemnation. This was your your status when you were dead in your sins and trespasses in, in Adam. And you could have been a Jew. You could actually be a Christian and still be in this status where you're in Adam because you have never really truly closed in faith. The, the Spirit's never worked in you to have that. But if you're in Christ, now you've got the law up here, but then there's Christ. And you're in Christ. You see what I'm saying? You're in grace. The law is no longer... The, no, the law is no, no longer has a direct relationship to you as being under the law. You're under Christ. You're in Christ. And as it were, Christ has kept the holiness of the law, and now you're in Christ. You're still a sinner, but you're united to him. 
and he is making you holy. He's conforming you to that same code, but you're no, no, no longer under the law's condemnation. Are you following what I'm saying? Now, what he's using as an analogy here is the covenant of marriage. And he talks about the fact that he says, look, we all know that if a woman is married to a man, um, she can't go and marry another man as long as her husband lives. Now, in, in today's culture, we're like, what? What are you talking about? This but trust me, this is the way it should be. I'm not talking about the way our culture is. This is the way it is that if, you're, if you are married, a married woman, you're not allowed to go just marry another man. You can't, you're going to be an adulteress if you go, and, and vice versa, if you're a married man and, and you go and try and marry another woman, you're an adulteress if you are an adulterer, if you, if you try to marry yourself to another. But if that person dies, that's why the covenant is until death do you part, then you're free to marry another. doesn't mean that you're going to be happy to marry another, but it just means you're free to do that. And he says in the same way. And now the, the interesting thing, have you noticed how the thing changes here? It doesn't talk about the, the death of the husband here. You died. This is now you're the one that's died actually. And what have you died to? You've died to the law as it were. You've died to this thing. And now you're free. You're no longer bound in Adam. You're no longer like married to him, as it were. You're no longer on his belt. You are now married to Christ. And the church is talked about being the bride of Christ. That's the intimacy there. By the Spirit, we are in Christ. And so we are no longer free. We are freed from the lost condemnation. We are in a new, we are in a new relationship, not not that we weren't in a relationship, but we are in a new relationship with respect to these kinds of things. And this is the glorious nature of this. Then this is why you consider yourself to say like, am I going to live as if I'm still this person that's like, you know, dead in my sins and trespasses. I just do whatever I want. I, I almost forget about the fact that the law is holy. Because in fact, this is the interesting thing about the person who is under the law in this capacity, as soon as they have eyes to see about how terrible the law is and holy it is because they're sinners, as soon as they truly see the nature of their sin, that's precisely when they see Christ and they reach out to him. But the, the sad part about the, the fact that most, most of us, and we can all relate to have been born in Adam, the sad fact is that we're so self-deceived that we don't see that. And this is why, in most cases, the Christian life seems like this oppressive, horrible thing that people are calling you to. It almost seems like people are calling you to rules and regulations because you don't see the, 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 the sadness, the tragedy, the ultimate um, way in which you're enslaved to sin. You can't even see it. And everything looks... Everything feels free and light, and everybody over here seems like they're un, in, in some sort of like crazy uh, like, uh, thing where they're, they're obeying rules for rules' sake and that sort of thing. And it's only when you see the true nature of the, uh, of, of the infinite majesty of God as related to his law that you seek escape, and you see that there's a man called Christ who came and obeyed and, and was friends with sinners and brings them to him that he may be wed to them, and you might be united to him, and then you say, oh, how I love your laws, my meditation day and night. 
And then you start to see that everything that seems like amazing about sin is fleeting and, 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 and goes away quickly. It, it, it tastes great now, but then later on, you just, it, 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 it's filled with regret. There's nothing that can, that can fulfill the majesty and glory of, of being part of Christ. And so when we're in Christ, what is often the case is that we often go back and say, boy, that, this seems like, man, I I really want to, this seems like a lot of fun to do right now, or this seems like the thing that I want to do. And what Paul is doing is saying, don't you remember you were released from that? And you're like, oh yeah, that's right. It really stinks to be a sinner. But why do I like it so much? See what I'm saying? This This is the thing. There are no contradictions in Paul, beloved. This is the thing. There are no contradictions in what Paul's teaching. The contradiction exists in the heart of mankind, especially the Christian himself, because we have what we're going to be describing here, this this war between us that we still have the flesh in us that's causing us to, to, to forget this was really a bad situation and we long for those kinds of things. The person comes over and says, man, the, the rich, they seem so great. This is this is really cool being like, I wish that I was powerful like that. I wish I, I had an inexhaustible 401k and I wish I, I could live like that. I wish, you know, I had hot models on either arm and that sort of thing. And then you're like, and then, and then the, the psalmist comes in and says, oh man, what am I doing? I, then, I, then I considered their destruction. I don't remember how hard it was to live under that. Why would I ever want to do that? And then, then, then it's almost like my reason returned to me. And this is, our, this is the constant battle between, between the two. And so we, we kind of almost get into that then in, Roman, in, in, the, in 7 to 20 where he says, excuse me, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised, that, that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, it was sin producing death in me through, the, through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment, and through the commandment might, be, um, might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own Um, actions. For I do not do what I want to do, but the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Well, we can move on. That was super easy. That was easy. Okay, now, let me try and unpack this a little bit. Remember that we, the consequences of that sin in Adam plunges us, plunged all of us, as it were, into this realm. Remember what Paul, Paul says, we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We have to reckon with the fact that we don't have to think about necessarily demons around every corner and that sort of thing, but we are really in a battle against the sin, the flesh, and the devil. Sin is not just something you do, but it's almost like a spiritual power, as it were, that enslaves people to a principle of the way in which they think. Everything they do, it permeates everything. The reason why I picked bad to the bone is that we tend to think of sin as things that we accidentally fall into rather than things that permeate the very character all the way through it from head to toe. And in our very soul is permeated by this captivity to to sin in the world. We desire that which is not good. That's called the flesh sometimes. He calls it, it the, the Greek word is sarx. It's sometimes distinguished from the word for soma, body. Sarx is sometimes called the flesh. It can just return, refer to f- the kind of flesh that we eat, like animal flesh, but it's often used as a stand-in for the fact that we, that our, our very being, our flesh is sinfully inclined. We have the flesh, the world, and the devil, so that we, there's something in us that causes us to want to sin. It's sometimes theologically referred to concupiscence. I'm not even able to say it, concupiscence. It's basically a drive to sin. And the drive to sin in Adam is all-consuming if, you if you're not in Christ, okay? And it will cause, it'll, it'll cause you, you are the one still desiring, you are still the one willing, but your will is captive to a principle that causes you to be pointed always and bound or, or turned inward to do that which you want to do and to not honor God in anything that you do and in some cases to be controlled by um, lusts and various other kinds of things, angers, dissensions, all these, all, all these things pour out of, the, our, of our corruption. The reason that we sin is because of this corruption, this flesh that's within us, and it causes us to desire all these kinds of things that we do. When Christ takes us from that point of death to life, he brings us in as corrupt, this is, the, this is the glory of the gospel, that Christ has united corruption to himself. He has not cleansed you from all corruption so that you are, you are pure within and that you have your, that you, that you accidentally, wow, I didn't see that coming. I didn't realize that I was a sinner. He knows exactly that you're a sinner. The problem that we have is that we're, we're convinced sometimes that we're actually not sinners, that we're naturally good people, but Christ knows exactly the opposite, that he has united this 
corrupt nature to himself, and then he starts to purify it. He starts to work on us. He starts to make us more and more holy. In fact, this is, this is really, this is the dividing line right here, especially in different Christian communions, about what you think about Romans chapter 7. It is, as it were, that sin is something that you're healed from, that if you're in the Roman Catholic Church, the church brings you in, it basically baptizes you and then washes away all the corruption that you have. So you are no longer, and God looks at your soul and says, that is a clean soul right there. If this, if this soul dies right now, it goes straight to heaven. And then as soon as you start to sin in the Roman Catholic Church, you start to get all these spots all over your soul and that sort of thing. And then you can like go to the priest and you kind of work it off through um, you know, saying Hail Marys and penances and all these other things. And you can work off the spots of your soul. Um, if you get too many spots, then God looks directly at your soul and says, nope, you're going to hell. You can lose your salvation, but that's why you, the church keeps giving you grace so it can continue to wash all these spots, all the mortal sin off your soul, and you can get, get into heaven. Now, what they recognize is that they see that people are still desiring sin. They say, no, that corruption that was in you, that, 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 sorry, they don't even call it corruption. That desire that you have within you, that's not sin. That's just something you got to control. You got to learn how to get self-control and cooperate with grace and work at it. But you're not really a sinner. God couldn't possibly unite a sinner to himself and then declare you just. That would be a legal fiction. That's what they say about this idea that you're justified by the fact that you're justified as God looks at a sinner through Christ. He has to look directly at the soul of the person to declare them just. We deny that. We say, no, he looks at Christ, and because we're in Christ, that's why we're just. But he finds sinners as he looks, as, as, as that he's united to himself, and he purifies his bride. He makes her holy. Now, there are other Protestant denominations that says, yes, Yes, um, we don't agree with Rome on this thing, but there's a place in which you can become and receive this second blessing to where you completely remove the desire to sin and you no longer have the desire to sin. All these things are gone away and you kind of have this idea of perfection. There is nothing more, um, there is nothing more exhausting and soul-destroying than parts of these communions that I've been part of to constantly waiting and wondering why it is I haven't let go enough during this worship service, and then I go home and I want to sin all the time. Because you have to deal with the fact that you have a, you, you're still a sinner, but you're united to Christ, so you have this war. You are in Christ, so he has set you free from its, its demands, but you have to recognize that he has united a sinner to himself, and this is what Paul is trying to get at, that he's united a sinner to himself, and so now you're going to be engaged in this irreconcilable warfare between the, 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 the rem remnants of this sinful flesh that remain in you that Christ is working at, as well as the desire now, this new impulse, because you've got God's spirit to actually desire the good. Did you notice the way he said, I desire this, but then I find something within me that desires the exact opposite. I desire to be a patient elder, to be an example to you. And then I find myself a law within me while I'm running this morning to be like, oh, that wife of mine, you know, kind of thing. And I'm thinking, wait, what is going on? And I was like thinking, this is exactly the war that's going on in my members. This is what we go through. And if you don't 
if you don't understand that, then think about how crushing this is as a believer, as you're walking through life and you're wondering, as you're, as, if you're seeing this sin within you, you can almost have the thing is that I must not be a Christian because there's no way that a Christian could ever have these thoughts or these desires or tell God how many times I'm not going to do that again. He's going to cast me off. There's no way. Nobody else is dealing with that. It's just me because all, no, nobody could ever have these temptations or these, these corruptions within themselves like I do. You, if you understand it, then you're going to understand Paul himself is talking autobiographically where he's saying, I see this law within me that keeps wanting to sin, even as I'm desiring to not sin. I do the exact opposite of what I want to do. Does anybody here do the exact opposite of what they desire to do? I hope everybody raises their hand. If, if you're not raising your hand, it's okay. You don't have to participate. But if you're not raising your hand because they're like, no, not me. I'm always I'm good to go. It's like, well, we need to talk. I can't talk you into this stuff. I'm just saying that this is, that's a sad thing, okay? This is the glory of the gospel, though, beloved. This, is, this, is, this seems like bad news every time that we have to go. It's like, oh, wah, wah, we're going to confess our sins. But think about it. This is the amazing thing that we, we're coming to God as sinners, and we knew that all the time. We knew we were sinners the entire time. That's part of the deal of being a Christian. That's what's amazing about being a Christian is that we're sinners, and that God accepts us in Christ and has clothed us in his righteousness. And that we're not righteous on our own sake, but because we're counted righteous because of Christ. And because of that, we're striving for holiness and fighting against it and finding even in our own congregation sometimes the strife that's caused by our flesh breaking out because we desire to, to have commu good communion with one another. But there's a war within us that says, I don't necessarily like that person. I don't want to work with that person. I want to do that. And then we, we have to be reminded, be reconciled to one another because we're in Christ. This is the irreconcilable thing. And, and we have to be, we have to, we, this is why Paul is talking about it because he's trying to say, I know exactly what you're going through in your heart and I'm going to describe this to you in spiritual terms because you have this flesh principle within you that remains. And the worst thing for you to ever do on, on the one hand is to accept what the flesh is telling you that you have to do, as if you're still under its dominion. And, you know, there's all these things in Pilgrim's Progress that are amazing where, you know, like Satan comes down and tries to battle with Christian, and he's like, you're a traitor, you, you belong to me. And he starts listing all these sins to Christian that he's committed and Christians like, Christians, I, I wish I had the thing in front of me, but it's like, Christians is like, you named a bunch that are absolutely true, and you failed to mention a bunch. But I belong to Christ. It's like Satan, you can name all the sins. You can, you're, you're exactly right. You can accuse me of all those. And, and, I, and you forgot to mention a bunch of sins. But no, you are not my king. You are not my prince anymore. This is my king. He accepts me. Accepts me. It's like you're no longer, I'm no longer yours. I no longer have to do what you demand. And I am not a traitor. I belong to this one, not to you. Or we can, we can be convinced that we, we, we can, we can it, it, 
or if we have given in temptation, that's the thing where we, we're, we're maybe being tempted to give in temptation and we resist it and we remind Satan of that. Or if we sin and then, Christ, and then Satan tries to te- test us, tempt us to despair of our sin and say, there's just no way that God could love somebody like me. And then we remind, we, we remind him and say, you haven't even counted the number of things. You, you, you have no idea. Of course, God accepts me in Christ because he accepted me while he was his enemy. How much more now he, will he redeem me now that I'm his friend? This is why understanding this battle is so important, not only in the battle against sin and death, because what Paul is urging us onto is a battle, but also a comfort to know that as you lose the battle on occasion, you don't go into despair, but you come back into the body of Christ. You pick yourself up. You kind of pull that person. You, you, if you're another Christian, you see somebody who's fell down in the battle. You help them up. You maybe carry their pack for a while. You continue on together as Christians. <clears throat> Continuing verse 21. So I find, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and, taking, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see what the resolution here is? Is that Christ is going to provide the ultimate victory because we are in him. And that doesn't mean we win every battle. That doesn't mean that we have victory over sin and temptation right now that we can ever expect in this life to ever be in a position where we're not going to be tempted. But beloved, Christ is said to be the head of the church and we're said to be his bride. And one thing we know about God is that he hates divorce. And one thing that we can be sure of is because God is so hateful of divorce in his own mind that no matter how much we stray from him in our battles with sin and death, he will never divorce us. Remember he talked about marriage? That's the comfort that we have is that Christ has so set his affection upon you that he will never divorce you. Though you are faithless, he will remain faithful. He will bring you back to himself. And we, we need to understand that as we continue to strive against flesh, that we will feel this, this, this pull within us, but we need to be reminded of the goodness of Christ in us. That one of the, one of the things that's very comforting to us is to know that in Christ's mediatorial work, he's the mediator between God and man. As we touch Christ, we have, we have, we have full access and we're through him to, to the very throne room of grace that Christ is said to be king of the church. And one of the things that I love about the way that Westminster Confession expresses, or, or, or one of the, one of the uh, catechisms, is it talks about that he will defeat all of his and our enemies. 
that this is one of the things that Christ our King is working toward, toward your behalf, that he is defeating all of your, his and our enemies so that even the sin and death that's warring, way, warring, um, that's warring against your members, he's going to defeat that. He's going to have the victory. And as we continue to strive in this life and, we, and, we have in, and we're in the midst of temptation, we have the ability on a daily, an hourly, a minute-by-minute basis to cry out to Christ and say, I'm powerless right now. I, feel I have no strength. I'd be sifted, by wheat, sifted like wheat right now by this temptation. But we have the ability to lay hold of Christ in his righteousness and his power to resist that. And then we also have the, the privilege then to come in tears and, and be reminded, say, Lord, I feel, I feel wretched. I feel dirty. I feel shameful right now. And Christ, Christ is welcome sinners into his bosom. And we're able to say, no, you, you said, you said you're, you're, you're united to me. You said you're my husband. You said all of these things, and I trust that over, over the sense of shame that I can't come to you. And so be encouraged in the gospel. Be encouraged by the fact, not that you're a sinner, but that Christ loves great sinners. This is, what, this, this is who he, whom he came to save. If you do not, if you, if you are just now experiencing maybe for the first time the, the real weight of your sin and you don't know who to turn to, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Be wed to him. Believe in him. Be united to him. Be saved from your sin and be assured then forevermore that he loves you now and he'll love you until all your enemies are defeated because he hates divorce. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the comfort that we have in Christ, even in this passage, as we're reminded afresh of the, the power of sin in the world, the power that would continue to enslave us, except that Christ has set us free from that. And so help us now to be reminded of that as we go forward this week and to be reminded that we are Christ, and in him we have, um, we have the ability to resist sin and death in our members and help us to do battle within it as we're reminded that this is the nature of the Christian walk, the nature that we're no longer under sin's um, wrath and condemnation or, or ultimate power, but we have the ability then to resist. And then also continue to give us comfort as we struggle against sin and as we lose against these kinds of things that you remind us that you are a good God, that you are a, uh, a faithful husband to us and that you forgive us and that you accept us as your beloved. In Jesus' name, amen.